Good morning. Uh, last week, we started a study that I entitled Following the Christ, and I told you that it would be a two-part message. Uh, I had last week every intention of completing the study uh, in one week, but after I started typing everything out, and I quickly realized that I would need another week to cover just all the content I felt like the Lord was impressing upon my heart. And so today's going to be part two of our study, the, the second half of what we began uh, last week. Now, if you weren't with us last week and you didn't get an opportunity to listen to the message online, that's okay. I'm going to do my best to try and quickly summarize uh, the first part of the message so that we can all be caught up on where we're at in our study today. So our text uh, is going to be the same as it was last week. And, and for context's sake and overall clarity, we'll once again read through the entirety of our text. And so, uh, will you please open up your Bibles to chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. And then, once you are there, uh, I'd like to request that you rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. Our text is going to be Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, just as it was last week. Title of our message is, uh, once again, Following the Christ. Follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Luke records the following for us in chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here in this place and open up your word and allow your word to mold us and to shape us. Lord, I pray that we would be soft and pliable, um, Lord, that we would allow you just to do that work you desire to do in us and through us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to be with us, to, to lead us and guide us in, in the word and through the word. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our time of study. And Lord, I do ask that you'd be with me and uh, allow me to bring forth this message with clarity. I pray that you'd be with all the rest of us, Lord, just that we would have ears to hear what your Spirit desires to say to us. We give you our morning. We give you this service. 
We give you this time and look forward to all you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So as we noted last week, our text this morning, though picking up right after the details of the feeding of the 5,000, actually represents details of an event long removed from the feeding of the 5,000. There is actually a significant jump in time and focus beginning here in verse 18. Okay, regarding time, we know that the feeding of the 5,000, which concludes with verse 17, occurred in the springtime, close to the feast of Passover. Okay, but the events of our text come right before the feast of tabernacles, according to the other gospel records. And so, you know, if you were with us during our Wednesday evening studies, uh, during the different studies on the feast of the Lord, you may recall that the time between the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles represents a time gap of six months. And so there's a significant shift in time. And in regards to focus, well, from here on out, Jesus' main focus will be upon preparing his disciples for what lies ahead for himself as well as for themselves as his followers. You see, from the other gospel records, we understand that Jesus is now about six months away from triumphantly entering into Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey, where he will then willingly lay down his life for us as our Passover lamb. And so Jesus focuses in upon teaching and preparing his disciples for this soon approaching event, letting them know what lies ahead for him and what to expect as his followers. Our text, as we noted last week, has many uh, very important questions that are answered for us. Questions that are a matter of life and death. Questions that are uh, of eternal consequence. The first question that we looked at already in our study last week uh, was in verses 18 through 20, where we looked at the question regarding Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? In our study, we noted all the different various responses that the disciples heard, as well as many of the responses we still hear today about the question of Jesus' identity. And while we did note the various responses that are out there regarding what others say about the identity of Jesus, we noted that the most important thing for us to understand is not what others say about Jesus' identity, but what we say. Who is Jesus to us? Okay? Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And and that is a question every person must answer for themselves individually. And that was the first point we made last week. When When we come before the Lord individually, we will have to give an account for the answer to this question. And so we need to have an answer for the question of who Jesus is. And it needs to be the correct answer. In our text last week, we noted Peter's response, declaring Jesus to be the Christ of God. And we unpacked for ourselves what Peter truly was saying by identifying Jesus as the Christ. If you remember, Christ is a title. Okay? It stands for anointed one. It is the same as the Hebrew title Messiah. And so acknowledging Jesus as the Christ was equivalent to proclaiming Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And that is the correct and only acceptable answer to the question of who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the anointed Lord and Savior of all humanity. In our study, we noted how important it is that we have the complete picture of Jesus as both Lord 
and Savior. Because a Jesus who isn't Lord of our life cannot be the Savior of our life. We need to yield our lives to Him as Lord and place all our hope in Him as our Savior. Well, having heard the proper answer of Jesus' identity as the Christ, Jesus then took the opportunity to explain to His disciples just what that meant in the next section of verses, in verses 21 through 22 that we covered last week. And in these verses, Jesus answered the question about his mission as the Christ, okay? Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. Yes, well, what does that mean then? Okay, what does it mean that he's the Christ? And Jesus specifically highlighted four aspects of his mission as the Christ. If you want to note them or renote them, if you're with us, Jesus said that, one, he must suffer many things. Okay, this was foretold by the prophets and fulfilled by Jesus when he set his face towards Calvary. Okay, he would be beaten, mocked, spat upon, his back opened up under scourging, okay, his brow pierced with a crown of thorns, his body nailed to a cross. The mental and physical pain and anguish he endured is beyond what most of us can even imagine. And so he must suffer many things. But Jesus said that he must also be rejected. This too was foretold and fulfilled. Jesus was rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes of the Sanhedrin. But he was also rejected by the very people he came to save. Even the disciples themselves ended up abandoning him in his darkest moments. Number three, Jesus said that he must be killed. And just like his suffering and his rejection, his death was also foretold and fulfilled. Jesus gave his life in exchange for ours upon the cross of Calvary. He died upon the cross, crying out with one of his final breaths, It is finished! And he yielded up his spirit. His lifeless body was removed from the cross and buried in a nearby tomb. But Jesus said that, number four, he must be raised the third day. And of course, this too was foretold by the prophets and fulfilled by Jesus. His body was placed in a tomb, but it did not remain in a tomb. For on the third day, he rose from the grave, defeating death and triumphing over sin. His resurrection is paramount to our faith. Without the resurrection, all the suffering, the rejection, the pain, his very death, it would have been for naught. As we studied last week, we noted why Jesus had to do all these things. Jesus had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He had to be killed. He had to be raised the third day because it was the only way to deal with with our sin problem. That is what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. It meant that he must suffer. He must be rejected. Okay? He must be killed and he must be raised the third day so that you and I can have the opportunity to have our sins paid for and to have the penalty of our sins removed. His mission was to lay down his life for ours and to grant us a way into eternity with him and the Father in heaven. And that's where we left off last week. Okay, we properly answered the question of Jesus' identity. He is the Christ. From there, we laid out what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ and what his mission entailed. Moving forward this morning, we're going to look at this third section of our text, dealing with the question about what it means to be a follower of the Christ. We know who Jesus is. He's the Christ. We know what it meant for him to be the Christ. Now, what does it mean for us to follow the Christ. We're going to see the answer for that laid out in verses 23 through 26. Let's take a look at verse 23. Again, Jesus is recorded as saying, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We have to understand something here. Jesus just finished telling his disciples about his mission as the Christ, how he's going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And then he follows that up with, if anyone desires to come after me, you know, one might wonder about Jesus' approach here. <laughs> you, know, you know, it definitely isn't the greatest sales pitch to get people to follow after you when you say you're headed to suffering, rejection, and death. Okay, you may not get a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I want to follow after you, Jesus. Okay, but listen, that's just it. Jesus wasn't looking for weary, uncommitted followers. Okay? He often challenged people, many who claimed they wanted to follow him. He would challenge them to answer the call, to leave the things of this world behind. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they had to leave the fishing boats behind, the nets behind. Matthew, the tax collector, left his tax booth behind. Hey, the rich young ruler, he says, sell it all, leave it all, and he would not. And he walked away sorrowful. I believe Jesus is still looking for more people who are willing to answer the call and live their lives in pursuit of Jesus. Here in verse 23, Jesus gives an explanation of what it means to follow after the Christ. And he mentions four things that we're going to note, okay, that I believe are needed from a follower of Jesus Christ. The first of which may be a little subtle, but I think it's worth noting. Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me. You see, the life of discipleship and following after the Christ must begin with a desire for God and for his kingdom and for the things of God. You know, this Greek word for desire, I, I looked it up, was doing a word study on it. It's a very descriptive word. Okay, it doesn't simply mean to wish for something or to long for something. No, it carries with it the action needed to accomplish the desire. You see, the Greek verb used here indicates not only a willing something, like, oh, I really want that, okay, but also pressing on to action. There is built into this particular Greek verb the resolve needed to accomplish the said desire. You see, it's the difference between someone saying, you know, I'd like for that to happen, but it never will. Okay, you could say, I'd like for that to happen. You can have a desire, but you kind of don't ever think it will happen or or. You know, it's just a pipe dream in a sense, you know, like, ah, oh, that'll never happen, right? You know, someone might say that, but then there's others who'd say, I'd like for that to happen, and I'm not going to stop until I make it happen. That's, this, this latter, you know, is what it's about. Jesus is saying, hey, that you must desire to come after him. You must have something within you that says, I'm going to not, this isn't just something, now. Oh, I'd really like to follow Jesus, but it's kind of too hard. No, this is, I really want to, I want desire to follow after him, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to do so. Do you have a desire within you to live for the Lord? A resolve, a, a commitment to follow after Jesus no matter the cost. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to pursue after Jesus? Do you desire to follow after him and live a life that will bring him honor and to bring him glory? You see, if he is your Lord and Savior, if he is the Christ to you, then that desire should be there. 
We should desire to live for Him. We should desire to honor Him in our lives, no matter what the cost. And if you have no desire to live for God and to follow after Him, I would suggest you reevaluate your standing with the Lord. What is your relationship with the Lord based upon? If you don't have the resolve to follow after Him, let me ask you, what is it that's keeping you from doing so? What is standing between you and fully following after Him? And you need to ask yourself the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I, I know the answer to the question, but it's a question, like we talked about earlier, it's a question every one of us must answer ourselves. The second thing Jesus mentions is that we must deny ourselves. The word deny, according to my Strong's lexicon, it means to forget oneself or to lose sight of oneself and one's own interests. The idea is to let go of your own dreams, your own desires, your own ambitions, and to completely surrender your entire self to the Lord. You see, denying self is not the same as self-denial. Self-denial is when we occasionally give up things or activities for a good cause or for a certain purpose. Okay? We may practice self-denial by not going back for seconds when we're trying to watch what we eat. We may practice self-denial by, you know, giving up a Saturday evening to go participate in an outreach or some sort of, you know, humanitarian efforts, you know. Uh, Self-denial is something we do from time to time to make ourselves feel better about our own selves, okay? Denying self is not the same. Denying self is a complete surrender of ourselves to Christ. It's turning from a self-centered lifestyle to one that's yielded to obeying God and His will for our lives. You see, the world around us says, hey, you need to take care of numero uno, okay? Uh, for you non-Spanish speakers, that's you know, number one, okay? You're number one, you've got to take care of yourself, right? Um, but Christ calls us to live for the Lord and, and to place the needs of others above our own. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 states, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The third thing Jesus mentions for those that would follow after him, he says there is a need for us to take up our cross daily. Listen, the cross was not a cool piece of jewelry people wore around their necks as a fashion symbol back then. The cross was a sign of torture and death. The standard Jesus is setting forth represents a daily dying to our own sinful passions and desires. It means to daily reckon the old man dead. It means to daily submit your life to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that that is our reasonable act of service to the Lord, to give our lives as a living sacrifice. We must die to ourselves each and every day. How do we do that? The answer is you 
can't do it. Okay? You need to die to yourself. You need to die to self. You need to get to the point in your life where you say, I can't do it on my own because we need the strength of the Holy Spirit in our lives to lead us and guide us in daily presenting our lives as a living sacrifice. If we can't die, if we're based upon, if we're trying to die to self and using our own self as the source of our strength, it's an impossible task. We need to give up of ourselves and rely upon the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before departing from them. This is what he said. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would give us the power to be witnesses in this world. Some of you may be thinking, where are you going with this? What does this have to do with dying to myself or taking up my cross daily? Let me explain something. The word witnesses, witness in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's a very interesting one. The Greek word is martis. And it's where we get our English word martyr from. Okay, and you guys know uh, what a martyr is. A martyr is a person who's killed because of their belief, someone who dies because of their belief. And the only way that we can be those that daily die for the Lord is through the strength and the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our life. Okay? If we want to be martyrs, if we want to be that living sacrifice and die to ourselves, we can only do so by the strength and power that the Holy Spirit gives us. And so we need to be yielded to and submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us to die daily. Okay? To get to the place where we say, I can't do it on my own. I need you, Lord. I need your power to lay down my life for you. The fourth and final thing for a follower of Christ is to simply follow him. Wherever he leads, we must follow. It means that we have complete trust and faith in God's direction for our lives. We're not worried about where the path may lead, where Jesus may go, because we have an assurance that where he leads is the place that we need to be. We have an assurance that as he leads, he will be faithful to provide us with the means necessary to follow after him. Following the Lord isn't something we do off and on. It is a lifelong commitment. The word follow, it's a, a verb written in the present active imperative. It means that we must keep on actively following Jesus. Even when the road gets a little rough, Okay, even when it appears that rough seas are ahead, we don't pull over, we don't abandon ship, we stay the course, knowing that there is no better place to be than following right behind our Lord and Savior. Now, the rest of our text in verses 23 through 26 explains why it is a foolish thing not to respond to this call to follow Christ. There are three explanations that Jesus gives. Each of them begins with the word for. Let's take a look at Jesus's first explanation in verse 24. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus declares that if you won't answer this call to die to yourself out of a desire to save your own life, 
that eventually you will lose it. No matter what you do to protect your life, eventually you'll lose it. The end for all those that don't come to Christ and follow him is that they will end up losing everything that they were unwilling to surrender in the first place. Everything that you held dearly, everything that you were unwilling to part with, everything that you were saying, hey, this is standing between me and the Lord. I I just can't give this up. Guess what? You're going to lose it. But Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And this is the beauty of the Lord, okay? As we step out in faith to answer the call to follow him, God does something miraculously. When we surrender our dreams and ambitions to the Lord, he replaces them with things that are so much better. You know, I've said this before. It's a bit of a saying. It's not, you know, chapter and verse from the Bible, but it's a saying that I like to use. And it's this. A good thing is not a good thing if it stands in the way of something better. A good thing is not a good thing if it stands in the way of something better. You know, you may look at your life and what you got going on and think to yourself, I've got a good thing going on here. You know, life's good. And, you know, I don't want to have to give up all this in order to follow the Lord. Listen, that good life you think you're living isn't better than a life fully surrendered to the Lord and His plan for your life. It doesn't matter how good your life is. Okay? If it isn't surrendered to following Jesus, I know there's something better. And we can't let something that is good stand in the way of something that is better. You may think the cost is too high at first, but as you commit to it, you will realize that the rewards supremely outweigh the cost. I cannot recall ever meeting someone that answered the call to follow the Lord and found themselves right in the center of God's will for their life and then felt like the cost was too high and the commitment not worth it. Famous missionary Jim Elliott wrote about this in his journal when he penned the famous words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'll say that again, okay? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We willingly give of our life knowing that we don't get to keep it anyways in exchange for a life surrendered to the Lord, something that we know we'll never lose for all of eternity. Let's look at Jesus' next explanation of why it would be foolish not to respond to his call to follow him. Verse 25, he says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Jesus brings up here the value of one's life. The value of one's soul, as the other gospel writers describe. What profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? The wording is very severe. It is speaking of complete destruction, loss of everything. It speaks of eternal death. Not just this physical life, but the spiritual life as well. The word profit is an accounting term. Okay? It's used to identify gains that are made through trading. Okay? Like you, uh, you know, if you're profit, you talk about stocks and you're trading, you know, it's like, hey, what are your, what's your net profit? What are you making out? You know, you kind of take the pluses, the minuses, and you weigh it all out and you, you see what kind of 
profit there is. And he says, if one were to gain the whole world and all the treasures and riches that are within it in exchange for their eternal life, the question is, would there be any profit? Would you come out ahead? The answer is no. Even if you could gain the whole world and all of its riches, how long do you suppose you'd be able to keep it? (laughs) How long could you enjoy it? 50 years? I don't know, how old are we? You know, some of you guys, 20s, 30s, maybe some of us in our six, okay? Maybe you can enjoy it a little bit longer, okay? Gabe's going to enjoy it a little longer than us, okay? Think about it. 50 years? Maybe? You think you're going to enjoy life the same way at 80 as you do at 30? Jesus is talking about eternity here. What's a few years here on earth with all of its riches in comparison to eternity? You see, scriptures talk about our life and how it's like a vapor. According to James chapter 4, verse 14, it appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Here today, gone tomorrow. How much value do you place on your eternal life, upon your soul? What is it worth to you? To God, it was worth sending His one and only begotten Son to die in your place. And it's plain to see that the Lord has placed an extremely high value upon our eternal life. And yet, there are so many who are willing to trade it away for things that don't add up to a whole lot of anything. Satan comes along and he offers passing pleasures, cheap thrills, and fading glory, and people are wheeling and dealing. It makes no sense. Offering their souls for things that have little to no value whatsoever. Listen, church family, there is nothing on this earth more valuable than your eternal life, okay? No amount of treasures or riches could ever equal the value of your eternal life. If you're wheeling and dealing, you're losing. And you're losing big time. You do not want to become spiritually bankrupt. That is the direction you're heading in if you're wheeling and dealing. You're getting ripped off. It's time you realize that. Let's look at Jesus' final explanation, verse 26. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. To be ashamed of Jesus is to reject him and to live for the ways of this world, a world that is perishing. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 describes the day of Christ's coming in this manner, proclaiming, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You see, the world and everything in it, they are all going to burn. It's all firewood. In verse 11, the very next verse of 2 Peter chapter 3, it challenges us with how we ought to live our lives in regard to this fact, stating, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, okay, since everything's firewood, listen, 
What manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? If we know that this world and everything in it is nothing more than firewood, it ought to cause us to pursue after things that will last. It ought to cause us to live for Him, to follow after Him with our minds set upon eternity. Because Jesus said, if you are ashamed of Him, then He will be ashamed of you at His coming. When Jesus comes in His own glory and in His Father's glory and in the glory of the holy angels, He will refuse to acknowledge those who were ashamed of of him. Listen, the Lord is coming back. And I believe, though I've said this many times, you might say, yeah, you say that all the time. I believe the Lord is coming back soon. And I know for a fact that the day of the Lord is one day closer today than what it was yesterday. We need to make sure that we are not ashamed of Christ and we are not ashamed of the gospel message of Christ. We need to echo Paul's declaration from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul proclaims, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We need to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus was not ashamed of us. He willingly went to the cross and endured the pain and suffering of crucifixion, and he despised the shame that it brought, and he ended up in the presence of the Lord, sitting at the right hand of God. And just as Jesus was not ashamed of us, we must not be ashamed of him. We must deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow after him, living for eternity and for our own place in heaven. Amen? Amen. Take a look at our last verse, and we'll wrap this study up. Verse 27. But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. As Jesus spoke of his mission as the Christ and then the expectations of any who would choose to follow after him, he then declares something interesting about the kingdom of God. He states that some who were there with him amongst the disciples would not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, What exactly did Jesus mean by this? There are actually many different interpretations that have been suggested. And the main thing seems to be, that seems to be debated, is what Jesus meant when he referenced seeing the kingdom of God. What exactly did Jesus mean? Um, In the parallel accounts, uh, we can gather some additional details that may assist. In Mark's gospel, Jesus Jesus is recorded as saying, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And so there's this little add-on to the end, present with power. In Matthew's gospel, he puts it this way, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. From these accounts, we get a little more information. From them, we get the sense that Jesus wasn't only referring to the kingdom of God, but specifically his coming into his kingdom with power. So this would seem to be a clear reference to his second coming. 
However, verse 27 in our text begins with the word but. A- and but is a conjunction, conjunction that's used to introduce a phrase or clause contrasting with what has come before or what is expected. In this case, Jesus spoke about being ashamed of those who were ashamed of him during his second coming. And so the immediate context seems to be his second coming. And verse 27 is said as a statement of contrast to his second coming. And so this has caused a lot of confusion and a lot of speculation as to what Jesus is referring to here. Okay, and my studies, I came across a number of different possible interpretations. I'm not going to share them all with you, but I'm going to share some of the more prominent ones for us to look at. And we'll unpack this and see what we can figure out. Some look at what Jesus previously said at the end of verse 26 when referring to his coming and believe that Jesus is continuing to refer to his second coming in verse 27. There are some difficulties with this view. For one, it completely disregards the grammar used by Luke when contrasting what Jesus was saying in verse 26 with what he says in verse 27. But an even greater difficulty with this view is that all the disciples he was speaking to have in fact died. And if we believe verse 27 is speaking about the specific event of the second coming, we also must believe that his second coming has already taken place, that it took place prior to the death of the disciples. Clearly, his second coming has not taken place, and so the possibility that Jesus was referring to the second coming in verse 27 is not likely. Some hold to the view that verse 27 is speaking about Jesus setting up his kingdom through the church, that that's what 27 is talking about, that Jesus is possibly speaking of the work that would begin through the church at Pentecost when God's Spirit came and was poured out upon men. Well, this view, it fits within the lifetime of the disciples, so there's, it has that going for it, but it doesn't fit so well when we cross-reference what the parallel accounts record Jesus is saying. Again, re- remember Matthew's account, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not test death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Pentecost really doesn't refer to the Son of Man coming at all, but the Holy Spirit coming, right? We know that the scriptures say in John chapter 16, verse 7, they teach us that in order for the Holy Spirit to come, Jesus had to first go to leave. Okay? Jesus said that it was to our advantage that he leave, for then he would send us the Holy Spirit. And so to connect the coming of the Holy Spirit with the coming of the Son of Man would seem to contradict the scriptures that teach us that the Son of Man had to leave in order for the Holy Spirit to come. A third possibility that some have suggested is that perhaps Jesus was referring to what John would see while on the island of Patmos, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, John the Apostle is given a revelation of the future, a sneak peek at what was to come. In it, John sees the coming of the kingdom and many of the surrounding events associated with Jesus' second coming. Though some tried to kill John, he was one of the few of Jesus' followers who were not martyred for their faith. And so, in a sense, we could say that he saw Jesus' coming in power and glory through the revelation that he was given prior to his own natural death. So we say, oh, that kind of fits. But the difficulty with this suggestion is that Jesus clearly mentions that there would be some, using the plural pronoun, 
who would not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Well, the revelation was only given to John. And so it really doesn't fit the description of some that Jesus used. A fourth viewpoint, and the final one that we'll look at, is that Jesus was speaking about the transfiguration. Okay? The transfiguration fits within the context as well, for it's the very next event that's spoken of after these words were shared, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing. Also, it fits within the idea of it being a select group of some amongst the disciples, for as we'll see, it was only Peter, James, and John who witnessed the transfiguration. The difficulty with this point of view is that we don't typically think of the transfiguration as an event depicting the kingdom of God being present with power, nor as the coming of the Son of Man into his kingdom, like described by Matthew and Mark. So most see it as a, a divine revelation of the nature of Christ, that he was God, uh, the Son of God, not as a picture of his coming. And so we're kind of left. We've got some solutions, possible solutions, possible interpretations, but they each have some holes. They each have some difficulties with it. I would suggest to you that there is a solution to remedy um, the supposed difficulty with the transfiguration. Okay? Uh, it's been proposed based upon Peter's own testimony through his second epistle in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, okay, perhaps referring to his royal power. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And verse 18 says, And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Clearly, Peter is referencing the event of the transfiguration here when he was with Jesus on the holy mountain. He heard the voice of God and Peter testifies that this event was a display of Christ's coming in power and majesty. And so we do have a biblical testimony from Peter that the transfiguration was a display of his coming in power and majesty. And so I think it helps to, you know, maybe answer the questions that are presented by that idea. So which interpretation is correct? I can't say with 100% certainty. I tend to believe that Jesus was indeed referencing the transfiguration here in verse 27, but I do see room for other possibilities. And you guys, we need to understand that sometimes Bible study is like that. We study it, we look at it from different angles and approaches, we look up different cross-references, we possibly study the original language, and we don't always come up with a sure proof interpretation or understanding of the text. Oftentimes, we will find ourselves perhaps leaning more heavily upon one view than the other. That's okay, but we need to be careful of making a hard stance upon something the Bible does not take a hard stance upon, okay? Because we run the possibility of becoming dogmatic with our own opinions and views, and we can sometimes cause others to stumble or even cause ourselves to be in sin by looking down upon someone that doesn't see things in the same light as we do. Don't get me wrong. When the scripture is clear, we must stand upon the truth of scripture. 
We know that Jesus is the Christ. We know what his mission was. We know what is expected of a follower of Christ. Jesus makes it plain for us here. We can stand upon that, okay? But do we know with certainty what Jesus was referring to here when talking about some of them not tasting death before his coming? No, I I don't think we can. But in those times of uncertainty with debatable things, it's best to know what you believe, but also to understand that there are other possibilities. So what do we take from all of this? In our study, we were able to identify and answer some very important questions, questions that do have eternal consequences. Who is the Christ? What is the Christ's mission? And what is expected from a follower of Christ? And my hope for us is that we have all come to a proper understanding of who Christ is, that we would have in awe of what he accomplished on his mission as Christ, and that we would all have the desire, that conviction, the resolve to be a follower of Christ. No matter the cost, wherever he may lead, that we would be convinced that there is no better place to be and that nothing else this world has to offer would ever sway us from our pursuit of him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you for the example you gave to us, living a life of surrender, a life of sacrifice. Lord, you took up the cross and you died for us. Lord, and you've called us to follow after you and to present our lives as a living sacrifice, to take up our cross daily, day by day, to commit ourselves to following after you. Lord, we cannot do it in and of ourselves. We lack the strength. We lack the fortitude. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit in our heart, in our life, to strengthen us, to empower us, to daily die to ourselves, that we might pursue after you. Lord, we know that one day, for those that have called upon you as Lord and Savior, we know that one day we will be with you. But Lord, give us a passion and a resolve to pursue you. Lord, protect us from complacency. Protect us from just becoming lethargic in our walk. Give to us the power needed to follow you no matter the cost, wherever you lead, knowing that it is the best thing for us, for now and for all of eternity. We love you. Again, we thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for the work of Calvary. Thank you that we have become sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would fan our flame for you, Lord, that we would burn brightly for you. Lord, that things of this world would not hinder us 
or keep us from you. Lord, I ask, or if there's any here that have just not surrendered, Lord, or they know that there are things that are just holding them back, that today would be the day that they let those things go and they'd realize, Lord, that what they have is nothing in comparison to what you have for us. Move in their hearts. Move in our lives, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.